And church, if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to be working our way, uh, continuing on in Matthew. So we're, we're continuing an Advent series called An Unlikely Story, and we're actually picking up in verse 18 this morning, but we're kind of shifting gears. So the last couple of weeks, we have spent uh, some time looking at people in Jesus' genealogy. Right? We looked at people who we would not expect to be there. People who, uh, as you think of someone who is called Savior of the world, there are these individuals that you don't really expect to be there. That could be classified as failures and rejects. And God says, hey, these people are in the family of one I call my son. Right? And so today we're still kind of looking at the unlikely nature of this story and the unlikely people involved in it, but we're kind of kind of come at it from a different angle. We're actually going to focus in or hone in for a little bit on the problem in the story. You see, every story has a problem or conflict. In fact, I think some of our storytelling and some of even the compelling nature of stories for us happens because God has wired our souls to love this chief story so much. Right, so, so we get to build up to uh, every story we read, we get the setting and the characters, right? But then there's inevitably a conflict, a problem in the story that needs to be resolved. And so the story finishes and we get to see some resolution to the conflict. And this story is no different. But the solution, the solution to the problem that we encounter is entirely unexpected. So have you ever been uh, stuck in a circumstance like this where you uh, want to say something along the lines of this is just a mess, right? Like you look at the you look at the problem, you look at what you're dealing with, and you are just like, man, I cannot find my way out of this. This is a mess, right? So maybe you might think of uh, perhaps some of you times of financial hardship. You have to sort through like, how am I even going to get out of debt, right? Or or how am I going to get my spending under control? Or, or how am I going to figure out uh, where like, my spending is even happening? It just feels like money is just falling out of my bank account, and I don't know how that's happening. Or, or how am I going to manage my bills? And so what are you trying to do as you try to piece those things together? You're trying to find some solution to help you clean up the mess that exists. Right? Or maybe some of you think about uh, relationships or relational challenges that you have that end up messy from time to time. Right? There are multiple people in these situations that might be hurt. Everyone is kind of bringing, everybody in a relationship brings their baggage from their past with them, right? And so everybody reads other people through the baggage that, uh, of what happened to them. And then you have to have kind of, you have to learn, okay, how do we like communicate well with each other? How do we gain good communications tools? Uh, and then you kind of have to sort through, okay, like you think this is important and I think this is important and, and these things are in conflict together. And so so one of us has to, or we both kind of have to figure out how to compromise to some degree. Like all of relationships are built on some of these ideas. Or in some cases, you recognize that the situation is really toxic. And what you need to do is simply walk out of the relationship, right? But at the end of the day, what are you trying to do? Well, you're, you're noting that when two human beings are in relationship with each other, there is discord at times, right? And it becomes a mess. And, and the best that we can, we try to clean up the messes that exist in our relationships. So I don't know about y'all, but I am a solution-oriented person. I love to figure out how can we fix it. Meaning when I see a mess, I develop a series of steps 
where if we're starting at point A, I'm like, okay, we're going to walk through this step and this step and this step. And by the end of the steps, we're going to clean up the mess, right? But here's the thing. Why it is often good and right to try to clean up messes, there are some messes that do not clean. Right? There are some messes that you cannot clean up. Right? Grief. I mean, I, I could give you steps and stuff, but I ain't going to tell you anything that's going to stop your grief from happening. Right? Sickness. Sometimes past trauma. Sometimes, and there are times that the only promise you have is not that the mess will get cleaned up or get cleaner, but actually that it's going to get messier. Right? That's all you have. And so if you're really honest, a lot of messes in your life, you've actually come to a point of acknowledging that those things are not going to get cleaned up. So you have accepted a change kind of in job description for yourself, right? From that of mess cleaner to that of mess manager, right? Like at the end of the day, that's what all of us are, right? We're, we're mess managers to one degree or another. And so life, life in a broken world is really about learning to manage our messes, right? And that's what we're going to kind of hone in on this morning. What do we do with the reality of living in a broken world where all we're simply doing is, is not really cleaning up things, right? That, that we're running into problems that we don't solve and that we really just need to learn how to manage them. Because it would be truly unexpected for that reality to ever change for us. Okay, so in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew 1 verse 18 is where we are picking up this morning. It says this. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, we have uh, been looking at this story, this genealogy of Jesus. We looked at uh, what it means that Jesus is called Christ, because remember, Christ is not his name. It is his, his title, and Christ is uh, the Greek translation of a Hebrew word called Messiah. And Messiah means that he is the one that God has chosen to be Savior. So now, over the last two weeks, what we've looked at is we kind of looked at uh, Jesus' messy genealogy. Right? We looked at the, the uh, kind of characters that got included in that genealogy, how it includes his genealogy, moral failures in there, and rejects, and doubters, and foreigners, and all the people that you wouldn't have expected to be in his genealogy show up there. And now that we know about his messy ancestry, we're going to hear about the circumstances of his birth. Oh yeah, right, and how does this start out? His mom who was supposed to be married to this guy, Joseph, but wasn't married to him yet, she got pregnant before they got married. And it was from the Holy Spirit. That's not messy at all. I mean, that's just incredibly complicated, right? So verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So it would have been, for what it's worth, it would have been very legal for Joseph to do this. But it's telling us that he wanted to do it in this way because it's trying to reflect on the upstanding nature of his character, that he wanted to do it quietly. He could have done it openly. He could have made sure that everybody knew about it, but no, had known about it. But, but he wanted to do it without other people finding out about it because he wanted to preserve her future, the possibility of her having a future. But 
he also wasn't open to raising somebody else's kid, right? And so Joseph devised a plan to manage his mess, right? He became a mess manager. He's like, okay, man, what? I, I can't clean this up. So I'm going to figure out something we can do to kind of manage what's happening here. So he did it in an upstanding way, but it was still management of a mess. It's not a solution. It's the best in a series of problem management options. And so verse 20 says this, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The angel says, hey, Joseph, it's messy. Don't be afraid of the mess. Others are going to look at you, and they will still see it as messy. You need to know that. It will, for what it's worth, probably feel a bit like a mess. But in what seems messy, Joseph, you need to know that God is up to something. Right? This child is a child that God put there. And then the angel says this in verse 21. She, the one betrothed to you, will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. It says uh, Jesus. Now for what it's worth, you get into a little bit of language stuff here. But names mean something in this culture. His name is Yeshua or Joshua and that name literally means Yahweh is salvation right the great I am is salvation God the creator of the universe is salvation Jesus' name means Yahweh is salvation but salvation from what remember Joseph he is stuck in the middle of a mess right now he's got something he's trying to sort out And the angel says, he is salvation from every mess, right? Salvation from all of the messes, salvation from the source of messiness in this world. It says he will save people from their sins. See, this, I mean, this is the next very unexpected part of this unlikely story because People knew that Messiah, Christ, was supposed to be a savior. But most Jewish people think that what they needed salvation from was Rome. Rome had conquered them. Rome had come in and set up their rule. And Rome gave them a little bit of leeway to practice things as they wanted. But every Jewish person was like, Messiah is coming one day. And he is going to throw the Romans out of here and give us our land back. And that's what every Jewish person thought needed to be solved. That's what Messiah was coming to do, that he is going to free us from our oppressors. And God says, the building of military might is just another mess management tool. The chief mess is not that you are ruled over by other human beings. The chief mess is that every human being is separated from me. Right? The chief way that you need to be saved is not from your oppressors, but from your sins. The chief problem is not that we're like hunky-dory, right? And that like I'm just going to conquer your enemies for you. 
The chief problem is actually that you and I are at odds with each other, right? And that all the other messes stem from the reality that God and people have this dividing wall between them. So to further grasp the nature of the mess, we need to kind of go back to the beginning of the story. Because what, uh, what this angel is saying to Joseph is significant, but it's pointing back throughout all of human history. So we're going to go back to the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, we have the wonder of God's power of creation. Everything that he created was good. And then he created human beings, and he said, behold, it is very good. Right, like This is like the crowning achievement of his creation. And so after he created them, he gave them this command in verse 28 of chapter 1. It said, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over everything that moves on the earth. God says to his people, I made you. In fact, earlier it says, I made you in my image. I made you. Nothing else in creation is made in my image, but you are made in my image. I love you. And I am giving to you as a gift this earth that I made with my hands. And you have authority over it. You are given charge to care for this thing that I have created. So as I lead you, and tend to you, you are to lead this earth and tend to this earth and everything that is in it. And so as a sign of their trust and responsiveness to God's leadership as they lead creation, God gives them this command. This is the sign of their trust in him and their love for him. Verse 16 of chapter 2 in Genesis. The Lord commanded the man, saying... You may surely eat of any tree in the garden. Everything that I've given you here, it is for your good, and you can eat of it. But there is a tree in this garden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat from it, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So this is what God says. God says to Adam, he says, hey, I'm going to give you a way for you to keep displaying that you trust me. I'm going to give you a way for you to continue uh, in your own leadership responding to my leadership. So you just simply have to not eat from that tree. And so then, in the midst of all of this, God has created this kind of loving scenario where he is caring for his people and his people are caring for the creation that he's given to them. And then a liar comes into the garden where Adam and Eve lived. So Genesis 3.1. This liar was called the serpent. Now the serpent, it says, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So, for what it's worth, he knows what God said. And that's not what God said. When he asked the question, he said something. Did God really say that? Well, no, God didn't say that. But what is he doing as he asks the question? He's creating confusion. 
God said, you shall not eat of the one tree. He didn't say, you shall not eat of any tree. But here he's, he's kind of saying, you know, did the God who made you, and the God who loves you, really say that you can't eat any of this fruit? God said, you can eat of any fruit in the garden, but, but except for the one, right? And, and so every question is meant to make God look restrictive and demeaning. And it's meant to chip away at Eve's trust in God. So verse 3. But God said, so she's responding now. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So now, in him creating confusion in the question that he poses, she responds, and now she says something that God did not say. Right? She misremembers what God says. She, she said, well, God did say this, but yeah, he, he did restrict in this way. He said, I can't touch it. God didn't say that. Least you die. God just said that she can't eat of it. But somehow, because of his question, she has become confused and actually been made to see God as more restrictive than he actually is. And so verses 4 and 5 of Genesis 3, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. <laughs> Quite literally, when he says, you will not surely die, he says two words in Hebrew. That's it. He says, not die. When she says, God said, you will surely die, he says, not die. You won't die. That can't be true, which is another lie. And then he says something true. Notice how he mixes in truth and lie together to distort what is actually true. He says, right now, you don't know evil. You only know this. Now, what do we know about this? God said, this is good, right? They already know good. There's nothing additional for them to know. They already know good because they've seen it and God has made it. And so he's saying, when you eat of the tree, you will know two things. You will know good and evil. And so then through a diminishing of trust in their creator, he's trying to get them to let evil into the world. Now remember, God gave them authority, right? And this is the thing that we need to remember. God, when he created them, he said, here, I am giving you this earth and I want you to care for it. You're going to uh, respond to my leadership as you lead creation. But their authority is in part connected to who they trust, who they believe, who they follow. And so verse 6, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. What happened? They trusted the liar instead of trusting God. Right, so, so they trusted the liar to tell them what was good instead of believing what God had told them was already good. And God had given them authority. So by them trusting the liar, they used their authority that God had given them to invite the liar in to have power in creation. Right? And, and by trusting him, 
they turned their authority over to him. You want to talk about a mess? That's a mess, right? A liar invaded God's creation, and the human beings that God made in his image let that liar have authority over the creation that God made. But that's not all. The major thing that they did is that they introduced sin. They introduced disobedience and therefore death into creation. And from there, the world gets defined by oppression and lies and murder, vile practices, debauchery, abuse, and the thing that God said would take place, which is death. Right, so that's the story that Genesis 3 says. And so in Genesis 3, 23, that's the mess that's been created. It says, therefore, the Lord God sent them out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which Adam was taken. God said, because of what you've done, you and I can no longer be in the same place. We cannot be with each other. I cannot be with you. There needs to be separation between you and me because of what you've chosen and who you've invited in. So all of this is to, uh, to kind of point out the reality that our chief mess, the chief problem that all of us has, our chief mess is sin and separation from God. Every other mess stems from that mess. So from this point forward, the world gets turned over to the liar and to those who go with him, and human beings take part in kind of carrying out their own will of rebellion and, and instead of God's will of obedience, and the world kind of gets thick with this reality, and then we get all of these messes that we suffer from, that uh, grief and death and loss and pain and suffering and, and our own failures against others and the failures of others against us and these things compound on top of each other and it's all stemming from this first original problem. But I want you to take note of something. Because in that moment, in that very moment where everything fell apart, God hatched a plan. It was an entirely unexpected plan and it was a plan that even the liar himself could not imagine figuring out. So Genesis 3.15. This is something that he says to the liar, to the serpent, verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then he's, he's kind of pronouncing a curse over the serpent. He's saying... He, that is a singular offspring of the woman, he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God says to the liar, you might have authority now, but you will be crushed in the end, right? He's going to step on you. He's going to end you. And so... Uh, he hatches this plan, and for what it's worth, as the Bible talks about the, the, the lengths and the details of this plan, it says that even the angels, they don't quite understand what it is that God is doing. It's kind of confounding to them what he sets out to do from this point forward. So to, to hide his plan, God, to hide his plan, especially well, this is what he does. He invites failures into his family, and he invites rejects into his family. And he inc includes in his family and in his plan the unlikely people 
right, he forms this nation called Israel of people who used to be slaves in Egypt, right? He rescues them, and then he's like so patient with their rebellion. And then he gives us a promise. So in the midst of their rebellion, so through Israel, he does all of this amazing stuff, all of this unexpected stuff to build this nation. But this nation pursues rebellion. They, they don't listen to him. They don't respond to his leadership. He's a very similar problem to what you saw in the garden. But in the midst of their rebellion, while they were rebelling, he gives this promise in Isaiah 9, 6. He says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. When we read that uh, word, wonderful counselor, we would probably read that as one who might give us good advice or great advice. Last week I mentioned that that word wonderful actually means incomprehensible. You cannot understand him. Which would seem to tell us that the incomprehensible counselor is one who devises plans that no one else comes up with. The one who thinks up things that nobody else can anticipate. You see, Satan, he, he's the devil, right? He's the liar. He was the one who was in the garden, and he knew, because God had pronounced the curse, he knew that God was planning to send a human being who would crush him. Right? He knew that God was coming up with some kind of a, a plan. And so what does the whole world do? Well, Satan says, you're going to come up with a human being. I'll come up with a lot of human beings. They build armies, the whole world. They put their faith in epic heroes. They amass chariots. They use might to prove their dominance. And the forces of darkness are on the lookout this whole time for a mighty hero of pristine origin. But God had devised an incomprehensible plan to use a line of failures and rejects to bring about a child who would redeem failure and rejection. And so angels appear to Mary and Joseph in the passage that we're in. And they say to Mary and Joseph, both of them, God has done something that nobody has been planning on. He is sending this child to deal with the chief mess, the chief problem. So I want to show you this work of art. This work of art up here is called Mary Consoles Eve. And it's beautiful because it shows us Eve who is looking at the mess that her and Adam created and what they invited in. And it shows us Eve grieving over her unsolvable problem. And it shows us Mary, who was the unlikely recipient of an unexpected solution, right? who was told about the Messiah that God would conceive in her, who would come first, not as a mighty military victor, but as a meek teacher who would suffer and die and rise from death to save his people from their sins. And Mary is telling Eve, 
this mess won't be around forever. God will do something unexpected. Okay, so then back to Matthew. Back to Matthew. Verse 21. So remember, the the angel has appeared to Joseph in a dream, has spoken to Joseph, and this is what the angel said to Joseph. She will bear a son. You will call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. So, verse 22 of Matthew. This is kind of summing up. Matthew is summing up everything that has taken place. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So this is another prophecy that was spoken years and years, hundreds of years before, before this moment. Verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Remember, the chief problem, sin, right? Disobedience, rebellion, whatever you want to call it. It created separation between us and God. And Emmanuel comes from his throne in heaven down to earth to say, I'm ending the curse. Man and God can be together once again. God will be with his people. So through Joseph's messy situation, God, what he was going to do, he's, he's going to resolve all of the messes. Right? He's taking upon himself the resolution of every mess that has occurred in creation from that point forward. So I just want to look at one more thing that's going to help us to sum and pick all of this up and understand what was going on. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, it's explaining the amazing work that God has done through his plan, that he set forth from the foundations of the earth. And verse 7 says this, in him. This is in Christ. So Paul is writing to us, the Apostle Paul, he planted churches. He uh, did a lot of really amazing things after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And he is now spreading the message of Christ to everybody. And so he's writing to this church in Ephesus. That's what this place is called. And he says, in Christ, he says to these people who are gathered in this church, in Christ we have redemption through Christ's blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. So this verse kind of hones us in on two benefits that are extended by God to those who trust in him. Right? Both of them speak to the resolution of spiritual darkness, and both of them are very unexpected. Right? Because Satan thought that the solution God would come up with with was this, that God will develop a strong and impressive man in Israel, that God will crush the nations, that God will carry out justice against them and against their sin and against their darkness, and the nations will hate him for it. And that was Satan's strategy. Getting the people to believe that God was so against them that he hated them and that he wanted to end them. And so Satan, what he thought he was doing, he thought he was forcing God's hand in judgment against people and a heavy-handedness over people. But instead, Paul tells us that God was up to something quite different that nobody could expect. The first thing he tells us about is that we have redemption, which is 
by the way, a word used for purchasing somebody out of slavery. Right? So there are people who are in slavery to sin, and Jesus, through his blood, purchased those people out of slavery and into a different category. That's the first thing he says we have been promised. Right? Meaning those who believe in him gain purchasing power to, to find freedom by his blood and find deliverance from the powers of darkness that had at one time been given authority over those people. Right? Because slavery means we're enslaved to something. Our sin enslaves us to the powers of darkness. His blood liberates us from the powers of darkness. So redemption through his blood, that's the first thing. The second thing is the forgiveness of sins. So God, instead of playing into Satan's hand, instead of carrying out judgment on all humanity, he instead sent his son as a sacrifice for us in our place. So God, in so doing that, has now created this period of time between when Jesus first came and when he will return to carry out judgment in which people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation can believe on his name and find forgiveness and salvation. And that was utterly unexpected on Satan's part. He did not see that coming. So, so Paul is essentially telling us when he writes this down that sin and darkness and death, they did not force God's hand. It says, what does it tell us about? It tells us about these things that he lavished on us in all wisdom. Meaning God was thinking better than they were thinking. Right? He was thinking ahead of the game. God in his wisdom came up with a way in which all people could have their sins be judged in the body of Messiah on the tree and find freedom from judgment and become forgiven and welcomed in to his family. So verse 9 says this, making known to us the mystery of his will. Every time you hear the Bible talk about mystery, it's talking about this plan that God had devised, that the angels couldn't figure out, and that the powers of darkness couldn't figure out, but that God had set forth from the beginning of creation so that he might set people free from sin. That's the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. God had been sprinkling clues to his plan through the prophets all along, but they did not make sense until Messiah came and died and rose again, and then people went, oh yeah, that's what he was doing. That's brilliant. That's a really good plan. And so that Messiah in his first coming would come not to extend judgment, but to bear judgment so that he might extend forgiveness. And in so doing, make it possible for us, ourselves, by what he has extended to us, to ourselves be able to crush the powers of darkness and sin in our lives. And so our main point this morning is this, that Jesus unexpectedly brought freedom and forgiveness to slaves and rebels. That is the mystery that has been hidden from the ages, which has now been revealed to us in Christ. 
that Jesus would set free people who have enslaved themselves to the powers of darkness and give them access to the light. So what? First of all, I want to tell you that Jesus, he came to deal with your chief mess. Everybody in this room, he came to deal with your chief mess. The way that your mess gets dealt with, first and foremost, is by you turning to him and believing in him. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation, I would implore you, place your faith in him. Right? He loves you. He has shown his love to you more clearly than anyone else could imagine showing love to you. And he came so that you, though you be a sinner and though you be a rebel and though you walk into all sorts of things that you know you shouldn't have walked into and though there is mess in your life, he came that you could have your sin paid for and that you could be welcomed back into relationship with him. So if you do not believe in Jesus, I would implore you today, start and decide to turn your life over to him. Number two, we still manage messes. We are in this weird in-between time where messes still happen and we still engage in the management of messes. But the good news is that we do so with joy close by. Right? He gives us promise of an eternal future where pain and sorrow will be wiped away forever. Right? He is working, actively working out a plan to bring justice to every injustice. He gives you his presence with you in the midst of whatever you're facing. And he gives all of us a new family to love us and to keep pointing us to the gifts that he has given us. And so Psalm 30, verse 5, God in his wisdom has set his character in this way. Verse 5, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. That is the character of our God. So what, verse uh, number 3. Number three, I would invite you to simply thank God that he is an un incomprehensible counselor, right? That he, in his wisdom, came up with a plan that nobody else in all of creation could have come up with. But he did it in order to, to redeem, to reconcile to himself those who are separate, to win back a humanity that because of his action towards us, that we might actually love him in return and trust him. And so I would invite you in this season to approach him with thankfulness for the amazing nature of this plan that he has put together for our sakes. So I'd invite you to pray with me, please. Lord Jesus, as we approach uh, communion, as we approach uh, the table where we remember your body and your blood given for us, we simply want to say thank you this plan that you have come up with could not have been anticipated. But Lord, you did it and you invited us to be recipients of this mystery that you have worked throughout the ages. Jesus, in this season, may you keep our eyes ever fixed on you with thankfulness. 
And Holy Spirit, may you do a work of renewal in us that we might more effectively reveal to others the nature of this mystery which you have revealed to us. Thank you, Jesus. I want to pray this in your name.